welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. Besides that website, you can also find the show on iTunes, which is Apple Podcasts, and you can find it on Spotify and lots of other podcast platforms. There are links to Now Hear This Entertainment on at least a half dozen podcast apps at nhte.net. And in addition to what's listed there, the show is also on the likes of Overcast, Himalaya, Podcoin, Player FM, and more. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from New York, my guest is a multi-instrumentalist and an arranger, composer, vocalist, and music producer, in addition to being an author-slash-journalist. He has also done some acting. His newest projects include having redone an album from the 1960s by The Shags, plus he also wrote and edited a chapter in a book that's coming out soon about the music business. He is also planning a book of his own, He was a guest on this show four years ago on episode 72. You've been hearing one of the songs that he redid, entitled What Should I Do? It's my pleasure to welcome back to Now Hear This Entertainment, Nelson Montana. Hey, Bruce. How's it going? Good to be here. Yeah, Nelson, great to talk to you again. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. So we normally start off by having the guest talk about the song of theirs that we played during the intro, which usually consists of when, why, and how they wrote it. But since technically that was someone else's song that you redid, let's change it up for once on this episode. And first, have you tell the listeners about the project itself, and then I can come back around and ask you about that particular song. Sure. Well, uh, it's a little unusual, that, uh, and something I hope that uh, people understand, but I'll give you some background on the uh, situation. The, um, I'm redoing the music of the Shags. Now, for those who don't know, they weren't a very popular band. Uh, the Shags were a girl group from the 60s who are regarded as having made the worst album of all time, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of weird. Um, anyway, the, um, the album has gotten some uh, occult following over the years because it's one of these things that's it's so bad it's good. <laughs> but my approach wasn't to uh, just do, you know, bad music my uh, my idea was to it, it stemmed from somebody saying that when um when you work on music when i have clients come in they have a germ of an idea and uh, the basis of production and arranging is to take that idea and make it good you have a song you, you get a good groove you get a good bass line you get a good vocal you add harmonies at the end of it you have a song so the ultimate test, in a sense, was to do an album that was essentially an entire mess and make it good. But there was an interesting um, turn of events as I was doing this. I did find quite a bit of inspiration from this music. But I just wanted to give a short um, explanation as how this band came about so uh-huh. people understand. Uh-huh. Uh, these girls' father went to a fortune teller who said that you will have three daughters and they'll form a famous band. <laughs> and this guy believed it. Wow. And he took these poor girls out of school. And it was essentially a form of abuse. He bought them two guitars and a drum set, 
should have gotten guitar and bass and drum set. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's what made sense. And he just told them write songs with no musical training whatsoever. Mm. So they, what you had was pretty much a very re- well-rehearsed mess. <laughs> the guitars are out of tune. It sounds like somebody's throwing a drum set down a flight of stairs. <laughs> it's kind of hilariously bad. But as I was working out these songs, just sort of as an exercise to prove uh, you can make anything sound good, I found these little snippets of melodies and these crazy rhythms that were, may have been unintentional. And that kind of spurred the creative process for, uh, for the whole thing. And um, it all came pretty quickly from that. It was a, a strange muse. A strange form of uh, inspiration. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do we know about the Shags? Was that the only album they ever did? Are these ladies still around today? I, I think they may have done something a little bit later. But the interesting thing is because they were forced to do this and they, again, they knew very, very little about music. They knew maybe five chords. <laughs> wow. um, once their father died, that was it. That, they were free. Mm. And they they just gave up on it and went their separate ways, thinking that nothing would ever become of this music. But it was uh, Frank Zappa, of all people, who years later in an interview um, mentioned that he loved the band. Well, Frank Zappa, like Captain Beefheart, and Captain Beefheart had this crazy stuff where it sounded like three songs at the same time. That's kind of what the show sounded like. <laughs> and Kurt Cobain also said that that album was one of his favorite albums. So it got this sort of resurgence. And through that resurgence, the, um, the band actually got uh, popular, and they, uh, I think they actually did some revival concerts, okay. which was kind of when they were, okay. you know, essentially older women at that point. So, uh, yeah, very bizarre group and a very bizarre choice of uh, inspiration, as I said. But uh, what started as kind of a bit of a lark became something that uh, I'm honestly quite proud of. I really like the way it turned out. It, it's a combination of uh, 60s pop music, which I think in some ways is the ultimate form of getting the most tuneful expression in a short amount of time. And it also tapped into my prog rock roots because they would be skipping beats and adding beats. And as I'm working on mm. this, I'm thinking like, well, why not? Why not go with that? What, what does it sound like if I play a measure of 7-4 and 5-4? And that kind of tapped into my uh, prog rock thing, which I've neglected for years because songwriting over the years has been more about being commercial and being current and all that. And I just let all that go for this. I'm just like, I just went with it. Yeah. I just went with what I thought sounded good. I wonder how did this come? I'll either say onto your radar or how did it come back onto your radar? Because I'm going to be nice and say, when it was released in the 60s, as you're describing, that album was by no means an award winner or a chart topper. No. <laughs> and that's why I wondered how you chose it, because one would ask, well, with all the music out there, why would he want to cover something that was unsuccessful and not highly regarded instead of picking something that's in the public conscience? <laughs> right. Well, I, um, I was, I don't know, it seemed to be a bit of a kismet because I was hearing from different sources about the band again. I mean, I remember hearing about them years ago, like, oh, yes, yeah, the worst album of all time. And I listened to a few seconds, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is awful. <laughs> but um, people were mentioning it, and then I saw an article on it, and um, I was actually with a group of friends, producers, and songwriters, and I, w- I had mentioned how, you know, so much of what makes a song good is the, the um, how it's performed. 
And someone said, well, yeah, make a shag song sound good. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, "Mm, okay, I'll take that challenge. And just as an exercise for myself, I started working on one of his tunes. And to my surprise, as I'm doing it, I'm like, you know, this is pretty good. Hmm. And if you fix some things and you straighten the timing out and you use like, I would use little snippets of their melody and change some chords and maybe rewrite some parts. As I was saying, it just kind of kicked this creative process in. As I was doing it, I thought, you know, there's something here. These kids actually had something. They just had wow. no training. Wow. So they didn't know what to do with it. Wow. And I just felt it was a little bit of a redemption for these poor kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had no idea I would do the entire album. I did one song. I'm like, eh, let me do another. Let's see if the muse is still there. And it, it just kept going. Well, so even though you didn't originally write the song, since we were playing What Should I Do during the intro, uh-huh. maybe just talk a little bit about how maybe you, say, studied the song and decided what you wanted to do to it in terms of redoing it. I, I want to I actually start rolling up our sleeves here on, on some actual... <laughs> so here you are looking at this music that's already been done, and you've decided this is bad. So when So for that particular song that we played... What did you decide? Just just walk us through that. Yeah, well, the, um, I, I would suggest that people listen to at least a few seconds of the original Shags album. You, you won't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it really just does sound like an entire mess. But with that particular song, um, you know, it, like so many of the others, it was just kind of a sloppy mess and out of tune and out of time. But I like that little melody that it had. You know, what can I do? What can I do? And I uh, like, oh, that that's kind of sounds like something. So um, I just straightened the beat out and I thought, well, what do I want to do with this? Where do I want to go with it? And uh, I just kind of put on that um, connection to 60s pop music. I came up with a rhythm and then I started following their melody and straightening it out. And once I did that, the song kind of wrote itself. I mm. added harmonies. I wrote a bridge. And it's funny because a friend of mine said, you know, if you would have just changed the words, you could just call these original songs. No one would ever know mm-hmm. that it was their song. They wouldn't know that it was their song. <laughs> but uh, I thought, no, I mean, that was the inspiration. It was that little bit of melody that I probably would not have come up with. Yeah. Uh, and I think that they came up with it because they had no rules when they were writing. Mm. You know, so they weren't really being influenced by anything wow, wow. <laughs> other than their young minds. And I kind of like that. It's crude. It's raw. But that was my jump off point. And I just took what they did. And I approached it almost as if I was hired as the bass player and musical director. OK, mm. you hire me as a musical director and producer. This is what we're going to do with the song. And I went with it. I like it. I like and, it. It's, it's great perspective. <laughs> that's that's very interesting. Before we dig too much deeper into this project, first let me ask, and this will benefit anyone listening who has thought about recording someone else's music, was there permission required, Nelson, to redo this Shags album? And if and if yes, what all did that entail? And if no, why didn't you have to get permission? Well, um, you do have to get permission. This is the, this is the area that is so difficult for so many artists because, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Back in the day when record companies took care of this stuff, they had their team of lawyers. So that's a, a situation I'm having right now with my distributor that I thought I had permission, but it wasn't the correct permission. And I'm, all these different um, areas that get a little complex. It's, it's just a bunch of, you know, boring bureaucracy. 
But uh, along that line, it's funny because I um, actually covered a song on my YouTube channel by Prince, and I had Prince's people sue me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and how that came about, and this might be helpful to people who are doing stuff like this. Um, I had some uh, fans suggest I do a Prince song, and uh, I was searching for something. Prince is the kind of guy, I like him, respect him, you know, great entertainer, great vibe. Was never really bought into the fact that he's, you know, this great genius, but a talented guy. So I was searching for a song to do, and the song that I liked the most was um, When Doves Cry, which has no bass. And my channel tends to feature bass, and I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this? You know, am I going to put a bass part to it? So what I wound up doing is an arrangement of the song played entirely on bass. All the mm. parts are bass parts. <laughs> wow. So it's vocals, drums, and a whole bunch of basses. And, you know, I put that up there. And the next morning when I had my coffee, I clicked on the site, and I had 100,000 hits. Wow. And I don't do any promotion at all for you. So there are people that know all the tricks, and they have all their friends. And if you're young, you can contact everybody in school. That type. I don't do any of that. 100,000 hits in a day. Mm. By the end of the week, I had a million. Oh, my gosh. But Prince does not allow his music to be on YouTube, which I understand. You know, you create something, you're out to sell it, you don't want it available for you. I get that. So he, his people contacted YouTube. YouTube contacted me and says, you have to remove this or you're in violation. Now, they said you can arbitrate, but if I were to lose the case, I would have all my videos taken from, down from YouTube, and I have over 300 of them. And I would be banned from YouTube. Mm. Boy, oh boy. And I went for it. The argument being that I am not taking a recording from someone else and, and posting it. I am not taking songwriter's credit. I am simply covering a song. And it's legal to cover somebody's song. Now, it's illegal to cover somebody's song for profit. Sure. But if, you know, I said it. You know, the $3 I make from this video can gladly go to Prince. <laughs> I'm not profiting from this song, but I wanted it to be up there. It had a million hits. It brought yeah. attention to my channel. So I went for it. I fought it, and I won. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, so it, it, it's that kind of a thing. I mean, YouTube, the music industry in general, we can get into this later, is kind of going after the wrong people. But... Um, yeah, that's just one of those uh, stipulations and legalities that, that could get sticky. But, mm. uh, you know, you, you have to kind of go through the process to make sure everything's on the up and up. Otherwise, they come after you. And, you know, I'm amazed that my mind still works the way it does in, in trivial ways. But for some reason, I feel like, oh, gosh, when was that? Maybe uh, Maybe about a year and a half ago that Nelson and I met up when I was in New York and he and I had breakfast together. And I, I think you were sharing your opinions of Prince with me at the time that you were just mentioning earlier. But by the way, oh. listeners, if you never heard episode 257, my guest was Mick Mahan. He's the bass player for Pat Benatar. He worked as an arranger on Prince's Under the Cherry Moon. So go back and oh, listen wow. to that episode 257. And as you're starting to hear from the things that Nelson's talking about, obviously he records on his own. So if you're like him, if you record on your own, do yourself a favor and look at all the great recording solutions available through Tascam. If you have listened to the show for a while, you've heard guests 
who have said that they've used Tascam, talking about guests such as Roy Orbison Jr., Jessica Lynn, David Longoria, the list goes on. I'm, I'm wearing Tascam headphones right now. I'm talking into a Tascam microphone. I'm patched in through a Tascam audio interface. And actually, in a little over 48 hours, I'm going on location to record an interview for NHTE. And I'm going to bring two other Tascam microphones and connect them to one of their handheld recorders. Check out options like those, plus mixers and other fun toys at Tascam.com. That's T-A-S-C-A-M.com. By the way, listeners, you know that in January, I was out in Anaheim at the NAM show and Tascam was there. If you're in the greater Los Angeles area, I will be out there from June 21st to the 25th. Let's meet up. Email me at podcast at nhte.net or just contact me through social media. Let's get together out in the L.A. area. Nelson, you're not charging anything for this album. Why not? Uh, well, I've gotten some heat about that as well. Some of the other people, uh, songwriters, are saying, you're lowering the bar more. Huh. And my attitude is, major major acts can't sell albums anymore. Hmm. I think the biggest selling album of uh, last year was uh, Ed Sheeran's um, it it's just it sold barely a million and a half copies. That's the biggest selling album. A million and a half. A million and a half. That's not a lot. No. That is not at all. <laughs> yeah, and again, the biggest selling. And I think of, of the ten um, best selling albums of last year, some of them didn't even hit a million. Mm. So that shows you the state of the industry in that regard. And I looked at it like. Um, and it's funny because some people will play for free, but I made a career performing live for free. That's something I won't do. But in this case, I'm looking at it like I'm an artist. I want my work to get out there. I would rather 2,000 people hear it than 200 people buy it. Interesting. And, um, you know, if I just wanted to make money, I could you know, just go join some wedding band and make money. But this <laughs> is a, a labor of love. And um, I understand that's just the state of the industry and the world as it is. If you're doing something creative and doing something original, um, it's a hard sell. But as I said, I just, I just want to share it and hope people dig it, and then I'm happy. Well, and as I said, you do record yourself, so it's not like you're having studio time that you're having to pay back and raise funds to cover. So it's just a matter no, of your time. No, well, it's, it's costly enough. <laughs> <laughs> Even just getting a little project like this, you know, it, it, it does cost money. But yes, the recording process has become a lot easier. It's a big learning curve, but being able to record is much easier, which is good and bad because now there are many more, there's much more competition. It's harder to be heard because so many people, you know, can and will do it. I thought you were going to say there's an easier barrier of entry, a lower barrier of entry for people like the the 2019 version of the Shags to record music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a little weird. Um, What's well, funny, you know, this is what um, one thing that the record companies did when it was actually a record industry is they set the gauge. You, all we knew about was the songs that were released by major record companies. You know, mm -hmm. there weren't people every five minutes putting out their own album. Right. And, um, you know, that caused just, just a glut of material, which in one way made music less special because we all need music. Music is just a part of our lives. But when we have 
all the music in the world available at any time, that does make it less special. You, know, you don't have to go out and try and find that rare album anymore. It, it's, it's always there. So when people making their own music, it just seems so incredibly unimportant. So it's very difficult for artists to say like, hey, I got something really great over here. Check it out. You know, when people could be checking out absolutely anything at any time. I'm making a joke about it, but if you do think of a 2019 version of the Shags, meaning someone who says it's very easy to record on my own and they record bad music, then now the good music has more quote-unquote competition just because there's more noise, more inventory out there to, to sort through to get to the good stuff, to find those diamonds in the rough. Yeah, that, that's it. It really is uh, difficult. And I know that what I'm doing... Uh, I think some people got it right away. They're like, Oh, that's so cool. That's, that's brilliant. That, you know, what a, what a great concept. And other people are like, what, huh? What, what are you doing? <laughs> Who is this? You know, <laughs> why are you doing this? So, uh, all I would say is like, just check it out. I, I think the album is the people who would like it is if you like sixties type pop music and, um, real quickly, this is one of the things that makes someone like the Beatles so great. Obviously the thing about the Beatles that people overlook sometimes is every part of their song, every section was catchy. The intros were catchy. The verses were catchy. The guitar parts, the drum parts, everything about it was so catchy and memorable that you wanted to hear it again. That's the genius of it. And I love that, being able to have everything right there in three minutes. And on the other hand, there's the prog rock element, which send listeners on a journey. Mm -hmm. That's what I love. Mm -hmm. um, I know you're, you're a Rush fan, if I yeah. recall. Yep. And what's great about Rush is uh, they demonstrated musicianship, surprise within their music. The music went places the listener didn't expect, and that became the journey for the listener. Meanwhile... Uh, Moving Pictures, which is arguably their best and certainly the most successful album, it had two hit songs. And they were hit songs in odd time signatures. So you can have both. You can have that tunefulness and yet the musicianship as well. And that to me is sort of the best of both worlds because uh, I, like, I like melody, but I also like, I, I want to be shown something. I want something that's a little bit surprising. It's yeah, a little... Yeah you know, exciting musically. Yeah, not real pretty. And I tried to do that with this silly concept. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is, when contacting someone to get your music played or to be interviewed, show them proof that you've made time to familiarize yourself with their show. Cite a specific show they did recently and mention something you heard then. Don't try to take a shortcut of just saying a guest's name who is on. That just means you read about them in the description, but probably didn't actually listen. As I have pointed out in a bonus before, listening will also help you prepare so you know what to expect in terms of the flow of the show. Your email saying that you heard such and such will show them that you are sincere and invested. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. That's really great to know, isn't it? Very helpful, right? 
Bruce gives out a tip just like that on every episode of this show, and there's an easy way to get all those that he gave out over the first 160 episodes. The ebook series called Bruce's Bonus Book contains four volumes, and they're all available for purchase and immediate download at www.brucesbonusbook.com. Order yours now for helpful tips that you can apply to your career right away. Well, just shifting gears, I mentioned back in the intro that you have written and edited a chapter for a book coming out soon called For the Record. How did you get that opportunity, Correct. and what specifically is it that you wrote in that chapter? Um, well, this is um, my girlfriend is a great uh, ghostwriter, and she does a lot of projects. And this one came her way, and she says, you know, I think this is really right up your alley. So she asked me to help her with it. And um, I did the editing, and as I was doing that, I was asked to write a chapter about uh, life as a working musician over the last... Mm. half century or so. <laughs> and I also, um, one of the things I, I'm kind of proud of is I wrote the questions for um, the last interview that was given to uh, Robin Gig from the uh, Bee Gees. Wow. And I got to tell him something that uh, I had also never seen in print and that uh, the Bee Gees may be the only group that were successful in one period on, in one genre. They were the, sort of the 60s pop thing. And then 10 years later when the trend completely changed and disco came around. They ruled that they had tons of hits in the disco era. Mm. And I can't, can't think of any other group that did that, that just completely changed gears a generation later and became equally as successful, if not more. So, uh, he appreciated that. And, um, yeah, the book just kind of gets into a lot of how the industry has changed over the years. Okay. Nelson, I also mentioned that you are in the planning stages for a book that you're going to do about the changes in the music industry. So where are you with that in terms of, say, a timetable? And then talk a bit about what you envision that book covering. Right. I have something uh, right now that's in the works. The uh, working title is How the Music Industry Destroyed the Music Industry. <laughs> and it, and it, it kind of follows it throughout the years. Everything from... Uh, I mean, God, if we go back to the 80s, I thought that um, MTV was sort of the start of uh, a decline in music because it took music from being imagery in the mind to being something visual. Mm. And that completely changed the landscape of how we approach music. And then it, it focuses on things like as soon as you know, Napster came around and downloading came around, the record companies, they needed to lower their prices. If CDs were five, six bucks, because they realized that people could download for free, people would still buy CDs, but they kept them up there. They kept them at you know, 16 17 $18, and people would just like the hell with it. I'll, I'll download. And that's why you don't see any record stores anymore, hmm. because nobody, nobody buys CDs. So they kept shooting themselves in the foot over and over in, in many ways, both artistically and in terms of uh, their business plan. And... Um, there you have it. I mean, some of the people I interviewed for the book, I mean, their concern right now is years ago, they would look for artists who were unique, who were good, who they thought were sellable, who they thought were worthy of attention. Now they're just looking for songs that, well, years ago it was songs that would be ringtones. Now it's songs that could be commercial jingles. That's the criteria. And when you have that, don't expect a whole lot of really great innovative music. So it sounds to me like you've got most of the material that is going to go into the book. It's just a matter of 
putting the book together now? Is is that the case? Do you have a, a vision? Yeah, for I want when to compile it, get it chronological, and show how things have changed, and take it up to the present. Even uh, the situation I was talking to before with YouTube, I thought at some point YouTube would have people arbitrating where. Um, just a, uh, a group of experts that would say, well, this channel is worthy, this, this, this artist is good, but it's just still kind of a free fall and it's all governed by hits. And um, again, that could be manipulated in a lot of ways. It's, it's hard for an, an artist to get that attention. Whereas um, years ago, record companies would stick with an artist if they thought they were good. If they really thought they had something, mm -hmm. they would stick with the artist for a while. But today, they just want uh, that instant home run, and if you don't deliver it, you're gone. And their idea of a home run, as I said, has really nothing to do with, with quality. It's um, you know something that's sellable, either because you're you know a cute sixteen year old girl, or uh, <laughs> you know you know the right people, or you could sell ringtones or whatever it might be. So uh, it's a little difficult for new artists, and nobody even has CDs anymore. So if you're an artist, probably a lot of the people you've had on your show, um, and you just go around and you do your one-hour set and you want to sell CDs, you can't do that anymore. Well, and I think it was meant for you and I to come back around and, and do an interview again at, at this particular time because what you're starting to say there, and, and you had started to touch on this a little bit, but four weeks ago on episode 272, singer-songwriter Whitney Doucette told me that she still prefers CDs because she feels it's a higher, meaning a better production quality, that sonically it just sounds oh, yeah. better than something that's compressed for streaming. And that was in reference to my having told her that two weeks earlier on episode 270, Daryl Friedman, he's with the advocacy arm of the Recording Academy, he said that he feels that we are heading to where there won't be physical units anymore, that it's all going to be streaming and download. So I asked Whitney, I said, as an artist, how does that make you feel since there's better earnings potential with a physical CD instead of someone downloading or streaming an album or just individual songs? Yeah. And, and you were telling me, Nelson, last week when we were preparing for this interview, you said everything is geared to be downloaded onto a phone and sound good through tiny earbuds and it's a tremendous right. compromise in terms of sound quality or the type of music that would sound good under those circumstances absolutely uh which is why you hear so many productions today where they all kind of sound the same they're all mixed the same there are no more band sounds i say to people like maybe three rock bands from the last grammy awards they're like i don't know nobody uh, nobody has a band sound because uh, because this is part of the problem. And it's funny because CDs, in a sense, weren't as good as vinyl. And there's, it's not a romantic notion. There are technical reasons why vinyl sounds better. But vinyl wears out, it scratches and all that stuff. So we accepted that CDs were a better choice. But now, yeah, everything is geared to be on a phone. So you have this false EQ and this false compression. So you just kind of hear the vocals and the drums and it pumps the bass. And I like a lot of bass on my recordings, but when I originally released um, On Second Thought um, and heard it streamed, the bass was insane <laughs> because mm. they add all this bass because thinking that people were listening on these little buds, so I had to go back and remix it. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and also just, you know, if you're doing a show and you hand somebody a CD, they have something in their hand. They could look at the liner notes. They could look at the album cover. You hand somebody a download card, it's just, it's, it's not the same vibe. It's very impersonal, and, how? and it doesn't seem to mean anything. And how? 
and it gets placed in their shirt pocket, in their wallet, in their wherever, right. that it's easy to get lost amidst everything else, whereas exactly. a CD is not going to get lost amidst anything. So there's exactly. definitely something to be said for that changeover. I am joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment Guest Line from New York by multi-instrumentalist, arranger, composer, vocalist, and music producer Nelson Montana. Visit his official website at nelsonmontanamusic.com. From the info page of his website, you can get in touch with him. He is available for session work, bass instruction, voice lessons, and gigging. Remember that his new release is available at no cost. Get it right now from his YouTube channel, although soon it will be available through his website as well. Nelson has more than 300 videos on his YouTube channel with a combined total of more than 1.8 million views. So check out and subscribe to his channel. If you did not hear last week's episode yet, I announced that if you have or if someone you know has ever considered starting a podcast of your own, I am going to be putting on an eight-day challenge online next month. Every day for eight days, I will be teaching you online everything you need to know to podcast. As you know, I've been doing this show every week for more than five years, and I speak at events around the country in the podcasting industry. Now I'm going to tell you how to get your show created, recorded, and launched. And the price is probably just going to be 18 bucks to take the challenge, not $18 a day, just $18 total. The exact dates in June have not been finalized yet, so watch for social media posts about it. And if you're not signed up for the weekly e-newsletter, go to nhte.net and sign up for the newsletter because the info will be published in there also once we have the dates as well as a link for where you can register. Nelson, I want to just go back to something that you touched on there a few minutes ago about record companies looking for songs that can be jingles for ringtones and commercials and and the fact that that changes the musical landscape for both artists and listeners and, and even for future acts. Yeah, um, well, th that's it. Um I don't know what approach the artist can take because um, I, I think people have to be true to themselves. They have to make the music that they want to make and um, try to sell it. And if it gets picked up in that regard, terrific. But I kind of get the feeling uh, the game is a little rigged in that regard. I think it's really difficult for an artist to kind of come out of nowhere and get that attention because the record industry is at this point self-contained. Many of the songs, you look at the, the top-selling records, and there will be a lot of songs by the same songwriters. Mm. Almost goes back to the old brill-building thing. But um, So the industry is not only um, controlled by uh, a, a small clique of people, because of the way music is recorded now, where it is very formulaic, they don't even need bands. They don't need people to have a unique sound. It's almost like... Uh, the reason why uh, reality shows are so popular is they're cheap to make. You don't need writers. <laughs> you know, you just film people and edit, yeah, and people yeah. will watch it. And it's kind of the same thing with music. You have this formula, you just throw a different singer up there, have the same songwriters write something, mm. you know, put it out there with this, uh, you know, production, and people will listen to it if it gets enough promotion. Well, plus, as you said, with reality shows, the reality shows are also largely driven by 
how good is your backstory? How good is your sob story? Yeah. Will, will the viewing yeah. public connect with some sad tale that you're telling them? And then, <laughs> oh, by the way, now sing your song for us. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. What kind of gimmick do you have? And obviously the, the best gimmick, and I understand there's a place for it, is if you know, you're young and good looking. People want to see young and good looking people. I get it. I want to see that too. There's always been a place for you know, commercial stuff. There's always been a place for a younger audience, but it seems that that's all it's become now. And it's gotten smaller and smaller. And um, I'm finding a generation of young people, uh, uh, millennials, people in their 20s, who are now discovering music from the 60s and 70s, and they think it's awesome. Because they're hearing <laughs> good tunes. A good song is a good song. A good melody is a good melody. Yeah. You know, some of the 25 year old kid just said, he goes, have you heard this band called The Cars? I'm like, yeah, they're great. <laughs> you know, but to him, it, it's new, but he would, he, he doesn't hear it because that's not what's on the radio right now. Well, but I like that you gave some encouragement to the artists who are listening that are creating their own music because you said, do what you want, do what feels right to you in terms of something that, on episode 268, Shane of, Arbor Season said that they have decided we're going to stop trying to write what we think would be a hit song. We're going to stop right. trying to write what we think would get on the radio. And we just want to write songs that we would enjoy listening to. And we want to write songs that are what we feel and hope that people connect with them, but not do the that, formula. That's the only way. It's the only way. It's a losing proposition to think like, oh, the trend is this. Let me do that. Because then... Well, it's not being honest. I don't mean even being honest to yourself. You're not even being honest to the audience. It's not you. Mm. The only thing that's going to sound organic and sound inspired is if you have something to say. That's what it comes down to. Do you, and that's why I really like doing this album because I've written a lot of songs in the past, and I thought they were good commercial songs, and some got published. But this was one that was like, I don't give a damn, you know, if it fits into the <laughs> the right demographic <laughs> or what's contemporary. I know it sounds dated. It's a retro thing. But you know what? I dig it, and maybe other people will dig it as well. And that, I think, just creates the best product. You know, you, you can't go chasing uh, trends because by the time everything is said and done and you release it, the trend will change. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just do what you believe in. And I think the most successful groups, you know, work along those lines. And when in doubt, create music that is prog rock because Nelson said that he feels that <laughs> prog rock is this. Well, is I love prog rock. I mean, it really is the ultimate music in so many ways. Uh, they weren't thinking in terms of, oh, is this danceable? Or, you know, mm. um, I think the old prog rock was better than the newer stuff. I won't mention any names, only because the virtuosity was in good songwriting. Today, you have guys with great chops and great technique, but they don't have the songs. Mm. You still have to have good songs. Like I mentioned, Moving Pictures, it's got songs. And that's why it's, it's, it's a great album. Good stuff. Good stuff. Listeners, if you did hear last week's episode of NHTE, I mentioned a picture that I had posted on the Instagram account for this show. Did you go and look for that picture yet? It was a picture of me playing my Boulder Creek guitar, which draws a lot of oohs and ahs because of its looks, but the sound is what really makes it, of course. And that's why big-name players are using instruments from Boulder Creek. They do guitars, basses, and ukuleles, and their CEO, Jeff Stramitz, who is a regular gigging musician just like you, he's a multi-instrumentalist, actually, he was the guest on episode 241 of this show 
and talked, in addition to some other great topics that he gave some good insight on, he talked all about the unique suspended bracing system inside Boulder Creek Musical Instruments. Mm. Go back and listen to that interview. Check out their website, bouldercreekguitars.com, B-O-U-L-D-E-R. And then get in touch with me if you'd like to get connected directly with Jeff to talk about having a guitar custom built for you. Mm, Very cool. We're in the home stretch here, but Nelson, since you live in New York and since we did touch on this four years ago when you were on episode 72 of NHTE, I have to ask, is there still acting work for you these days or is that chapter finished? (laughs) I believe that chapter is finished. I enjoyed it. I like working uh, in any field um, that's creative and the acting was that as well. But um, acting is... um, actors go crazy when I say this. I don't think acting really requires a great skill. Mm. <laughs> I know I'm going to have my acting friends hitting me for this. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I follow the Spencer Tracy uh, line of acting and that, you know, memorize your lines and don't bump into the furniture. <laughs> you know, I knew I didn't have great range and a lot of famous actors don't have great range. You play yourself or you play the character. I always played myself and I enjoyed it. What I didn't enjoy is chasing the work. And I finally had to come to the realization that um, I'm a musician. And if I'm going to struggle and do something, at least with music, I'll have something to show for it. As an actor, I got to uh, jump around and audition and try to get a bit part here and there. And I'm kind of done with that. I mean, it's, it's a great little ego rush to be you know, rubbing elbows with celebrities and stuff. But after a while, it's like, I, I don't need that, but I do need music. Well, there in New York, is it more difficult to get acting work or to get, when I say music work, I guess I'll say gigs. Uh, gigs have really changed because, again, we have a generation that have grown up on DJs. People don't expect to hear bands. You know, back in my day, that's old men <laughs> say, uh, <laughs> um, you know, before the Internet, before uh, cable, you know, people went out and you had to have a good band. Good bands drew crowds. Uh, I've probably said this before, but I tell people it's hard to believe. I would go to my gig on a Wednesday night, and there'd be a line down the block for people to get in. Wow. And it was just a bar, just a wow. club. But people went out, and good music sold. That no longer exists. Um, as far as acting, I did uh, All My Children for about four years, and they're gone. So I don't know. I don't know what the scene is. There's always work. There's always some work in New York for acting. But like I said, I just I didn't really want to pursue that so much. And um, I actually didn't want to pursue the uh, the gigs so much because I got so into the recording. And what I love about it is, um, again, you have something to show for it. Yeah, you do. Yeah. I've done a million gigs. The music flies off into the air, and okay, I did that, and I made a few bucks. But with recording, it's uh, it's a new challenge. And when it's done, you're like, here it is. I, I, I did this. Here's the proof. <laughs> and I like that. I'm laughing because you have so, so, so many videos on YouTube. It's making me think of someone who's listening is going to say, what does he mean the gig is over and he's got nothing to show for it? I was at his show and I was holding my phone up through the whole show and filming it. And I'm going <laughs> to put his performance on YouTube because that's what everyone does now. I know. They watch people's performances through their smartphone. Yeah, I, I don't get it. It's like, can you just be in the moment? You know? <laughs> or you know, people are not going to believe that you were at this show. Oh, look, here's so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, I was there. I, I, you know, I, look, it, it's a thing. I mean, everybody deserves their, uh, 
their idiosyncrasies or their trends or whatever you might call it. I, I'm not against that. I'm not going to knock people for doing things that way. But I do think that um, they're kind of missing uh, a big part of the picture. Yeah. Hey, look, my parents went to go see uh, Benny Goodman and Count Basie do a battle of the bands at Roseland with a thousand people dancing. That must have been a blast. Mm-hmm. I'll never understand what that was like, but I get that it was probably really cool. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think a lot of young people today are starting to realize like, yeah, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, there was a lot of cool stuff going on. And it's just, it's never going to return to that. Yeah. So right now, I think the question is, it's kind of up in the air. Where is it going to go? And I think the only way it'll be different, it doesn't go backwards, but the only way I think there's going to be any advancement for musicians if people still stay involved with it. And there's always going to be kids who are ambitious and want to feel that they have something to say. And to those people, I encourage them because you're the next generation. You might find that new way of getting your sound out there and you got to go for it. Nice, nice. Well, we're going to close with another song from the Shags that Nelson redid, one called My Pal. So before we let you go, Nelson, tell the listeners about this song. Uh, yes, this is uh, My Pal Footfoot, which is <laughs> a story about this girl looking for her lost cat, which is absolutely absurd. <laughs> but um, it's got a catchy little hook, and I, and this is indicative of the album where it's Definitely uh, sort of a 60s pop thing. But there were these odd meters along the way and these strange rhythm changes that I, I just went with it and, you know, straightened it all out. And um, the results are, are, are kind of cool. Awesome. Nelson, great to talk to you again. Thanks for making time. And uh, congrats. A very cool project. I hope you get some benefit from it, even though you're not charging for it, parentheses, yet, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so Thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate it. Have you fun. Bet. Listeners, that will do it for this week's episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to multi-instrumentalist, arranger, composer, vocalist, and music producer Nelson Montana. Visit his official website at nelsonmontanamusic.com. From the info page of his website, you can get in touch with him. He is available for session work, bass instruction, voice lessons, and sure, he will still gig if you want. Remember that his new release is available at no cost. Get it right now from his YouTube channel, although soon it will be available through his website as well. As I mentioned before, Nelson has more than 300 videos on his YouTube channel with a combined total of more than 1.8 million views. So do check out and subscribe to his channel. And as I mentioned earlier, if you didn't hear it on last week's episode, I announced that if you have or if someone you know has ever considered starting a podcast of your own, I am going to be putting on an eight-day challenge next month. Every day for eight days, I will teach online everything you need to know to podcast. As you know, I've been doing this show for more than five years. This is episode 276 with Nelson, and I'm going to be speaking in July at the Outlier Podcast Festival in Denver. Now I'm going to tell you how to get your show created, recorded, launched, and all for just 18 bucks for the eight-day challenge. The exact dates in June have not been finalized yet, so watch for social media posts about it. And sign up for the weekly e-newsletter at nhte.net because the info will be published in there also once we have the dates as well as a link for where you can go to register. Thanks for listening, everyone. I really, truly appreciate you listening and subscribing to the show. We'll send you out with another song from Nelson Montana. This is the one he just talked about. It's called My Pal. 
always likes to roam My pal's name is Good Good I never find him home I go to his house I got his door He won't come out and play Good Good Name is Bigfoot. 